Welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast dedicated to leadership development through commitment to reading. This is your host, Ryder Ashcraft. And your co-host, Phoebe Kotlikoff. On this episode, we are celebrating 10 years of women serving in the submarine force. The two of us are both dolphin-wearing, and we'll be interviewing Admiral James Fogo, a former four-star who also wears dolphins. Admiral James Fogo retired from the U.S. Navy in 2020 as the commander of U.S. Naval Forces Europe and Africa and the commander of Allied Joint Force Command in Naples, Italy. His naval career encompassed 39 years of service, including nearly 10 years spent in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. He served in command nine times, including as the commanding officer of the USS Oklahoma City SSN 723, the commander of U.S. Sixth Fleet, and NATO's Naval Striking and Support Forces. He holds a bachelor's degree from the United States Naval Academy, a master's of public administration from Harvard University, and a master's in defense and strategic studies from the University of Strasbourg. Sir, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, uh, Lieutenant Ashcroft and Lieutenant Kotlikoff, Ryder and Phoebe, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here with two accomplished submariners uh, to talk about DOD reads and uh, a number, number of other important issues as we look at uh, the future of great power competition. So appreciate the invite. Fantastic, sir. First question for you. What are you currently reading? Well, hey, that's, uh, that's a loaded question. I've got a stack of books on uh, you know, my bedside table that I have yet to get through, but I'll tell you the last couple of tomes are interesting and uh, rather unique. So the first one I want to tell you about is uh, a book that's a reprint called Oil and War. It's reprinted by the Marine Corps University, and uh, I'm lucky to serve in a pro bono status there as a member of the editorial review board with some other scholars. And this book is a fascinating book they, uh, they'd asked me to write a foreword for to release a new edition. And it was written by two gentlemen, Robert Gorelsky and Russell Freeberg. Uh, Gorelsky was an NBC News correspondent who served with the United States Navy in the Pacific in World War II. He covered the uh, Korean War and Vietnam War as a newsman, and uh, he's the author of the World War II Almanac, passed away in 1988 in Virginia. Uh, Mr. Russell Freeberg uh, served in the European theater of uh, uh, World War II, so my old stomping ground from Italy and some of the other places I served. He was with uh, the 8th Armored Division in the Ardennes. And uh, later, after the war, he became a journalist and was the Washington bureau chief and the managing editor of the Chicago Tribune. And uh, like I said, still alive today and still active as a blogger. Uh, the book deals with the interwar period between the First and Second World War. And I got to tell you, when I read it, I couldn't put it down. And by the way, I know you have the link that I sent you on your website. And this book is available for free uh, as an uh, electronic download from Marine Corps University. You can, of course, order a hard copy, and I'd recommend you do that for your library. Uh, I love hard copy books, so I can keep notes in them. But uh, the book really talks to, uh, it's a back to the future on great power competition, if I may. So between the, the end of the First World War, that great conflict where millions died, and uh, we didn't really solve the problem with the Treaty of Versailles, there was uh, a tendency for uh, Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan to rise. Uh, Germans in the European theater and the uh, Japanese in the Pacific theater. And the way that uh, they acquired territory or land 
uh, or capacity and capability was through petroleum oil and lubricants. So they had to have carbon fuels in order to expand their territory and their respective empires. And the book deals with uh, numerous examples of the thirst for oil. And um, when I finished the forward and finished the book, you know, having uh, served in the Pentagon and having known the former Secretary of Defense and General Mattis, you know, I was reminded of uh, his quote in Call Sign Chaos, his book, where he said, if you hadn't read hundreds of books, you're functionally illiterate and you'll be incompetent because your personal experiences alone aren't broad enough to sustain you. And he also used to say, you know, we went through Capstone and you can hear his speeches that if you want to learn something new, read an old book. And so I wondered if General Mattis had actually read this book. And so I sent him the electronic copy and uh, I got an immediate thank you note. And he read it and came back to me and said that he really enjoyed it. So that in and of itself for me and for Marine Corps University was a victory because if you know General Mattis, you know he's a, a voracious reader, and we actually found one that he hadn't read yet and that he liked. And so, you know, if it's uh, if it's good for General Mattis, trust me, uh, you'll enjoy it too. So the book goes into examples of uh, how the empires rose and how how they were defeated, and they had to be defeated by technology. Uh, for instance, uh, Germany was able to acquire a lot of gas and a lot of fuel that were for high performance systems like submarines and aircraft. But it was the United States that came up with, and a team of scientists that came up with 100 octane gas that really won the Battle of Britain. You know, and engines that were superior in performance uh, could take higher temperatures and pressures and could uh, outperform the Messerschmitts over the English Channel. So there's a ton of great examples in the book about that. And, you know, as I finished it up and thought about um, if you want to learn something new, read an old book, I thought about great power competition today. As we see the rise of these great powers, uh, you know, there's a return or a resurgence of Russia producing a lot of new weapon systems nowadays, acquiring additional territory, illegal annexation of Ukraine, moving into Syria, and then the rise of China. And we all hope for a, uh, a peaceful rise of China. But as my old boss, uh, Admiral and later Ambassador Harry Harris used to say, hope is not a plan. Uh, so you have to be prepared. And as I watched this rise in the South China Sea and in other places uh, such as Africa, I remain concerned. You know, I watched the Chinese build uh, the Dorlay base in Djibouti. And uh, just recently in the last couple months in congressional testimony, uh, my friend and colleague, General Steve Townsend, testifying for AFRICOM said, they're almost ready to receive a carrier. And you read recently that uh, They've got the Type 003 in dock, and they're, uh, they're getting ready to build their third carrier indigenously built in China. So there's nothing wrong with having a military to defend your interests. But when those interests become expansive, that's when I get concerned. So we're going to have to see what happens, and we can take lessons from this book and apply it in great power competition today. And that's where I end my foreword as you begin the book. So I hope your readers enjoy it as much as I did. All right, and uh, the second book I wanted to talk about, uh, Phoebe and Ryder, is uh, another interesting book with uh, an interesting title. It's called The Warlords and the Gallipoli Disaster by a scholar and historian uh, named Nicholas Lambert. Um, Nick Lambert had done a little bit of teaching at the United States Naval Academy. Uh, he loves this period of history. 
which is in the First World War, so many different conflicts going on in the region. And uh, if I may remind those who are not familiar with the term Gallipoli is uh, a place in the Bosphorus where the Dominion forces of Britain, Australia, New Zealand, India, and France uh, fought the Turks uh, for that territory. And it was, uh, it was, as the title suggests, a disaster. Now, the book is not about tactics and operations. And I have been to that battlefield. I've walked the battlefield of Gallipoli, and the Turks prefer to refer to it as Chanakali, and it's hallowed ground. The Turks lost approximately 250,000 people there. The Commonwealth forces 115,000. The French, 27,000. These statistics are all out there. So um, just incredible carnage. The war was fought over an interesting premise. You all know from your reading and from your history and in both high school and in university that the French Revolution was all about the price of bread. Marie Antoinette's great quote, let them eat cake. And, uh, you know, the theme of uh, Les Miserables at the wall in Paris, uh, the wall of resistance against the monarchy. Uh, this battle was really, uh, or the catalyst for this uh, great battle was wheat. So the same premise. And the problem was that uh, Russian forces, the Tsar, before uh, the arrival of the Bolsheviks and eventually the communist regime in Russia, was paying for their war effort by selling wheat. And uh, the British were sustaining the French by making loans, uh, you know, with the price of wheat. They were exporting it to the United States and to France. And so this was a, an economy, a capital market that was tied up in the sustainment of military forces. And when uh, that flow of wheat, which was like gold back then, was restricted. The British uh, went into action, and they made some uh, some bad political decisions. Now, the warlords were uh, the people in power in London at the time, Prime Minister Henry Asquith and his warlords, to include some great people of history, David Lord George, Field Marshal Kitchener, Lord Balfour, and uh, uh, Lord of the Admiralty Winston Churchill, in order to... Uh, open up this flow through the uh, the Straits and the Dardanelles, the British directed that there be a naval bombardment. That was a disaster against Turkish guns. And, uh, you know, they sunk several of the uh, Brits' battleships and uh, cruisers and decimated that, uh, that fleet that was in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, as if that wasn't enough uh, to follow on, and I think to prove a point that the Dominion forces could overcome this adversary, they conducted an amphibious invasion. And that's when the, uh, the real casualties took place on the ground. And uh, the rest, of course, is history. So it talks about political decision-making. It doesn't talk about you know, tactics in the trenches. Um, the important thing about it for uh, military officers today is to understand the relationship that must take place in civil military affairs, you have to have a dialogue. And that dialogue has got to be open and frank. You've got to be honest with our political leaders to let them know what our capabilities and what our capacities are, uh, what we can and we can't do with the forces and the resources that were provided. And you're seeing this play out in the budget today as we talk about can we get to a fleet of 355 ships or are we limited by a budget that really cuts that number down to somewhere between 300 and 305. And the CNO has testified uh, on Capitol Hill about this. 
and I'm very sympathetic because uh, I believe that capacity is important. I also believe capability is important. And you think about uh, hybrid warfare today and the mix of manned and unmanned ships and what do we call legacy? What do we let go? It all kind of plays in here to what uh, our effectiveness is uh, in the battle space, particularly in the maritime domain. And as we like to say, we want to fight to win, but we want to win without fighting. In other words, we want to deter. And so these themes that come out of great books like The Warlords and the Gallipoli Disaster or Oil and War are very important, I think, for the development of young military officers as they come up through the ranks. And frankly, that goes for our non-commissioned officers and uh, our enlisted teams, too, in their schools. I completely agree, sir. I think sometimes when, you know, you're at the tip of the spear or, you know, you're, you are the person on the deck plate, it's so easy to forget what actually makes things happen. And um, I think most of us who are early in our careers have so little familiarity with the budget process, the way these negotiations take place. And um, I think it has been uh a very important part of my development, trying to dig into that a bit more because you start to see the threads of how these things affect my day-to-day experience, whether it's in the shipyard or, um, you know, getting mission tasking. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. So, sir, on the topic of reading, developing yourself, continuous education, you were an Olmsted Scholar in France, and this was after your junior officer tour on your first submarine. Can we talk a little bit about how this experience, this cultural immersion, the opportunity to earn a higher education degree overseas uh, shaped your career and leadership style, both at the beginning of your career and at the end? Absolutely, Ryder. And uh, I would uh, highly recommend the Olmsted Scholar Program uh, to any young officer between the rank of uh, lieutenant and lieutenant commander coming off a division officer tour uh, or even a department head tour. It's, uh, it's not too late to start at that point. Uh, the program was devised by uh, Major General George S. Olmsted, who had been the uh, first captain of cadets at the United States Military Academy, West Point, while at the same time his brother was the brigade commander at the United States Naval Academy. So an extraordinary family. After the uh, First World War, General Olmsted uh, left the Army but stayed in the reserves, and uh, he built a banking industry in the United States. He created wealth, and uh, even though he continued to serve uh, throughout the Second World War and beyond and retired ultimately as a major general, he was able to set aside some of his personal wealth for the uh, George and Carol Olmsted Scholar Program. He and his wife funded this program. It's all about understanding foreign cultures, uh, being able to master a foreign language, and going to foreign countries and meeting uh, contemporaries, uh, senior faculty members, uh, people who live in the towns where you study. And we've had Olmsted scholars from uh, the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, and now every year, one uh, from the United States Coast Guard, spread like a seed pod throughout the world. Uh, It's not just understanding partners and allies. It's also understanding adversaries and potentially things can change in the world. So understanding folks that might be your friends today who may not be your friends tomorrow or 
you know, folks that are your adversaries today who could very well be your friends tomorrow. And think about the South China Sea and think about Vietnam and the, uh, the relationship Vietnam has with China, which is not very good. And the warming trend in the relationship with the United States of America, uh, even after uh, that terrible war that we were involved in, the Vietnam War. So for me, it was a privilege and an honor to be able to go to the University of Strasbourg, University of Robert Schumann, and be part of that culture for about two years. So I had a little bit of French in high school, and uh, I perfected the French language as I was going along and in an emergent course immersion course in Paris before I actually arrived at the university. And I competed with French graduate students uh, at the Institute of Higher European Studies and then over at the Institute of Political Studies. And it was absolutely a wonderful experience. When I left there, that's that of course was bittersweet because uh, it was one of the most enjoyable shore tours that I had. And at the same time, I was able to get an education. And the Olmsted Scholar benefits were very generous. And I was a lieutenant, so I was being paid as a lieutenant. Now, these are great programs to take a break from uh, sea duty or duty in, uh, you know, on the ground or in the air uh, and to, uh, uh, to actually spend time with your family. And we started a family there. I got to know a lot of people, and I continued my French proficiency throughout the rest of my life and my career. Where that became important is, lo and behold, I was... Uh, sometimes on the maneuvering watch on ships as XO or as commanding officer going to places like Toulon, France or Brest. I'm speaking to the pilot who basically has, you know, the safety of my vessel in his hands as much as it's my responsibility. And we're communicating in French in a foreign language. When I left the Pentagon to go to work for Admiral Stavridis as the Supreme Allied Commander of Shape Headquarters in Belgium, Every day, shape is uh, dual language. Uh, so the papers that you work on, the policy papers, are English on the front page, French on the back page. And in the North Atlantic Council or in the military committee, uh, French is an authorized language. Admiral Stavridis, who was brilliant with languages, spoke uh, Spanish, you know, a little bit of Portuguese, French. Uh, he would actually communicate with people in French inside that, uh, that chamber. And when I went off to be a one-star admiral in Naples as the operations officer for Sixth Fleet, as the commander of Submarine Group 8, the commander of Allied Submarine South, we did a lot in Africa. And we had uh, activities uh, on the continent with the Africa Partnership Station. Many of the North African countries, uh, Algeria, uh, Morocco are French-speaking countries, as are countries in the Gulf of Guinea. and so. Uh, that was an immediate icebreaker. You had a choice. You could speak uh, English, Arabic, French, Portuguese, and you know potentially other languages or dialects that were, uh, you know, uh, indigenous or commensurate with the particular uh, country's history and culture. And so that broke a lot of ice because uh, I carried on a lot of conversations with senior people in the French language, and it was highly beneficial uh, for us to be able to communicate. And I think they appreciated that. Uh, very much so. In fact, in the Maghreb region of North Africa, those people and those cultures consider themselves uh, Southern European um, because they have been exposed over centuries to European culture. And so uh, it's really, really important. And General Olmsted gave us all an opportunity. 
uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, an Olmstead board meeting where we picked a new group of scholars. And uh, I was very encouraged by the fact that the Olmstead Foundation has embraced uh, both diversity and gender equality. And we are looking for talented young officers to apply for the future. There's brochures online uh, at the Olmstead Foundation, and I would highly encourage you to check those out. And if uh, anybody is interested in the program, apply for it and see how it goes. You go through a service selection process, and then if you are uh, selected, you're nominated to the Olmstead Foundation, and then the board of directors meets uh, to choose. During that board process last month, um, the foundation has an annual award. It's called the, uh, the Colonel Bob Yablonski Award. Uh, Bob was uh, somebody who was helping to run the foundation when I was actually an Olmstead Scholar. He's a fantastic uh, officer, an Air Force officer. Uh, he passed away uh, from uh, leukemia uh, you know, over a decade ago, and we've created this award in his honor. And the award was uh, uh, presented this year to the last commander of the International Space Station, uh, Space uh, Force Commander, uh, Colonel Mike Hopkins, formerly in the Air Force and is now part of the Space Force. Mike was an Olmstead scholar. His story was incredible. He had applied for the space program several times. And then when it looked like you know, his window of opportunity was closing and he had a shore tour coming up, as we would say in the Navy, he applied for the Olmsted program and he went to Parma, Italy, and he learned Italian. Well, guess what? The Italians are part of the International Space Station. He mastered a language. He was able to relate to foreign cultures. And as we shifted from the shuttle program to the International Space Station, that's what was important. And if you ask Mike, he'll tell you that he thinks that that was the, uh, uh, the little extra edge that pushed him over the top and, and enabled him to become an astronaut. When he did become an astronaut, he had to learn Russian and not just a little bit of knowledge of how to order in a restaurant. He had to be proficient in Russian because he was up in space uh, with cosmonauts. And he launched from the Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan the first time to the space station. And in the second time, he went up in uh, SpaceX's Dragon Resilience. His stories were absolutely incredible about, you know, spending, I think, the first time almost six months in space and then another six months in space. And the relationship on the space station with uh, other cultures, other languages, other people, including the Russians. Uh, politics are left on Mother Earth. When you're up there, you depend on one another, uh, particularly in extravehicular walks. And somehow it works. I think that's a model for how we might be able to uh, figure out how to get along better as competing nations in this world of great power competition. And that was the vision that General Olmsted had. And so, uh, you know, I hope to see a lot of your names uh, on the next board meeting next year when we're selecting uh, some of the brightest young minds uh, in the United States military to go overseas and take part of this terrific program. Thank you, sir. Uh, it's definitely something to think about in the future. So you've talked a lot about great power competition, but your anecdotes from Olmsted show that these relationships that are developed with countries that are more on the periphery, you know, in Africa, in Central Asia, in the South China Sea, these are all going to be critical to how the United States operates within the context of the great power competition in the future. So what advice can you give for balancing, 
you know, our two major adversaries, Russia and China, and other periphery threats in areas of less focus, maybe in Africa, South America, um, even in the Arctic. Yeah, right. That's a great point. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm no expert on South America, so I'll take Africa and the Arctic in that order. I think that uh, as a nation, uh, the United States of America ignores Africa at its own peril. I mean, by uh, UN bona fide statistics, by 2050, we estimate that there will be 2.5 billion uh, souls living on the continent of Africa. You know, that will be a larger number than uh, China, a larger number than India, who are in the billion figures of population. And that means that, uh, you know, one quarter of the Earth's population will be citizens of one of the 54 countries of Africa. I think that's very important. And over half of uh, that population will be under the age of 24. What we as uh, like-minded nations need to do is to help uh, African nations and the African peoples develop their economies, their countries, uh, their education systems, so that they can be offered you know, a higher quality of life and a quality of life uh, similar to the one that we enjoy here in the United States, this creation of a, a broader middle class. And I believe it can be done. My time down in the Africa Partnership Station over the last decade of my service in Naples, Italy, as a one-star, three-star, and four-star, showed incredible promise. You know, it was like night and day. Uh, there used to be something we called sea blindness back in, you know, 2010. Uh, African nations woke up to the fact that the blue economy, the maritime is important, and we help them patrol their maritime waters, set up maritime strategies, and uh, increase the flow of those natural resources and riches into their economy and not be abused by you know, other powers who came to the region uh, who, were not who did not necessarily have their best interests at heart. I saw the growth of uh, the Chinese base in Dorale and Djibouti. Uh, we have traditionally had Camp Lemonnier there for decades in the Horn of Africa. It is a, a very important strategic location for the United States of America. Nothing says that the Chinese cannot pick and choose their own partners, nor can our partners and allies. Uh, they're allowed to pick and choose their own partners too. So the Chinese built this base very quickly. And I was interested to see uh, General Steve Townsend, my friend, uh, commander of AFRICOM, testify on the Hill a couple of months ago that it's almost ready to receive an aircraft carrier. I think that is significant. And, uh, you know, we'll see whether or not China continues to rise uh, peacefully and in a cooperative manner. Uh, I am concerned about the situation in the South China Sea and in the Straits of Taiwan. And uh, I do not think that bodes well. Uh, for the Indian Ocean or the waters around Africa or Europe as China rises with its one belt, one road strategy. And they are even present in the Arctic. Now, China is not an Arctic nation, but it has declared itself a near Arctic nation. And uh, President Xi Jinping talks about the polar Silk Road. This is important to their economy. As the ice melts, the Arctic becomes a more important economic and military focal point. Uh, you're starting to see the Russians uh, reveal a lot of new weapon systems. Uh, the new submarine Belograd, the uh, second of the Yasin class submarines, the Kassan, 
after the several advance. Those are very, very capable platforms. Personally, I think the United States Navy and our submarine force in the Virginia class is better and we keep the competitive edge, but we've got to keep the competitive edge. And so we see a lot of military hardware operating up in the Arctic. And I think uh, that should be a concern to Arctic nations of which we are a part. Uh, there are eight nations in the Arctic Council, and these are Scandinavian countries and Russia. Russia currently holds the chair in the Arctic Council. They recently relieved Iceland as uh, the chair of this political body that's supposed to maintain you know, an economic and environmental balance in the Arctic, and that's becoming more and more challenging now that we have more players up there and we have less ice and we have more water. And I think that the Arctic Council is worried about the militarization of the Arctic, but they tend to turn a blind eye to that issue and let NATO try to resolve those issues, which is fine, except uh, with you know the competition that we now have in the Arctic with great power competition, presence of China, presence of Russia, presence of the United States of America and our other Arctic nations. And when you put uh, those three together, there could be potentially in the future, a mistake or a miscalculation, or there could be a natural disaster, or there could be a, a problem with a cruise ship in distress, or there could be a, an oil tanker that has uh, a leak and contributes to an environmental disaster. We've got to figure out how we can pool our resources to do something about it. So most recently, I think on your website, uh, Commander Rachel Gosnell, who I'd worked with in Europe, and I put together a paper for the Center for European Policy Analysis called the Transpolar Bridge. We talk about the transatlantic bridge in the context of uh, this, uh, this glue that holds us together across the vast area of the Atlantic between North America. Canada, of course, is a member of NATO. The United States is a member of NATO and all of our European allies and partners who make up this organization of 30 like-minded nations. And that transatlantic bridge has a political entity called the North Atlantic Council. Uh, the Secretary General is, uh, you know, the, the senior chair, if you will, of the North Atlantic Council. It's been uh, a former prime minister of Norway, Jens Stoltenberg, extremely competent and a capable individual. I know him well. And there is a military body uh, of the military committee, which is chaired uh, currently by the Dutch Chad, it was uh, formerly uh, the UK uh, Chief of Defense, uh, General Sir Stu P Air Chief Marshal Sir Stu Peach. So you have a political body, you have a military body that supports the transatlantic bridge. Well, why not do the same in the Arctic? There is a political body. It's the Arctic Council. There is potentially a military body that could come together as the eight Arctic nations. And that's not including China because they are not they do not have contiguous territory in the Arctic region north of 66. But on either end, there's a choke point. As you go into the Arctic through the three approaches uh, from the European side or come out the Bering Sea on the other side, it's important that we keep commerce flowing in there. And so the Arctic Council and the Arctic Chiefs of Defense Conference could be a productive way of coming together to resolve some of the policy issues, the uh, issues associated with climate change, the growing economy. I think they're, you know, the economy uh, in the Arctic is somewhere in the realm of, uh, you know, four hundred and fifty billion dollars in commerce that's taking place, and uh, and then on the military side, one of the concerns I have is as great powers grow in capability and capacity, they um, they 
test their weapon systems. Uh, we're starting to see all sides uh, building more hypersonic weapons. You've heard about some of the undersea weapons that the Russians have announced, the Poseidon torpedo, supposedly a, a nuclear-capable uh, uh, torpedo that goes very fast. Where are they going to test these? If they start to test them in the Arctic, things are going to become contested and very busy up there. There needs to be a scheme of maneuver. We need to sit down and have a dialogue. Now, the Arctic Chods haven't met in since, since 2014. The reason for that is because of uh, Russia's illegal annexation of the Ukraine. Uh, I don't think that uh, we're giving in or giving the Russians anything in light of the fact that they illegally annexed the Ukraine. I think it's important for military forces, joint forces, to have an opportunity to talk at the table and to have transparency. We in the United States have the Incidents and Sea Agreement. We meet with the Russians once a year to talk about you know, unsafe and unprofessional uh, conduct. They have their opinions on what we do, and we have our opinions and case studies on what they do. And we sit down for a civil dialogue. And uh, sometimes it's productive, sometimes it ends in you know, uh, just a, a talk about, well, you did this and you did this, but sometimes there are things that are put into place uh, as risk mitigation efforts. So it's really important that we not ignore the Arctic, uh, that we not ignore Africa, and that we move forward in great power competition, uh, not only with the goal of fighting to win, but winning without fighting. We want to deter, we want to defend our interests, and we want to have dialogue in order to do so. So I think that's uh, that's a formula. It's a new approach. And I think it could be a formula for success with the Transpolar Bridge. So tell your friends about the Transpolar Bridge and use the acronym TPB so uh, people ask you about it. And if you have a chance, read the article. I think it's comprehensive. It takes you through uh, the history of the Arctic region, uh, you know, the militarization, uh, the climatization, and the growing economy uh, there. Well, sir, I can definitely say that I learned something from reading the article about the TPP. And for our listeners, again, that's the Transpolar Bridge. Um, I do have a question, though, for you about the militarization of the Arctic. So when you were stationed in Europe, you were the commander for Trident Juncture 2018, which is the largest Arctic exercise that the United States and NATO has participated in you know, since the Cold War. And we're seeing Russia also conduct pretty significant exercises in the Arctic. Recently, they surfaced three submarines in the Arctic. They're sending paratroopers into Franz Josef Land in the middle of winter, which is not something that we've typically seen before. What advice can you give for people that are going to be operating in these regions to both maintain our military edge, but also, as you were discussing, you know, create an opportunity for political dialogue and even use this opportunity to work with Russia potentially drive a wedge between Russia and China as the great power competition unfolds? Yeah, Ryder, great question. I mean, Trident Juncture was, uh, was the pinnacle of my tour as Commander Naval Forces Europe, Africa, and then the Allied Joint Force Commander in Naples, Italy uh, for NATO. So uh, technically speaking, as the uh, uh, Allied Joint Force Commander in Naples, my domain or my AOR in the maritime, it was really a joint domain, so it included all the services, but right on the Mediterranean. It was looking to the south, hence my interest and my love of uh, the African continent. And uh, we stood up through initial operational capability and 
full operational capability of the NATO strategic direction South Hub. But we are uh, versatile and adaptable both in uh, U.S. forces and NATO. So when tasked to uh, certify as the NATO response force commander, which meant for one year, anytime uh, a crisis came up in NATO, we would be capable of responding in a certain amount of time. You have to train for that and you have to certify for that. So we decided to train in one of the uh, most difficult areas of the uh, greater NATO region, and that was in the high north in the Arctic, above the Arctic Circle 66 North. And we selectively picked the months of October and November because those were the most challenging times. And, uh, you know, uh, Americans and our NATO partners and allies, we don't ever take the easy way out. And this was really, really hard. It was uh, extremely cold conditions up there. Weather was extremely challenging. We started in Iceland, we moved to Norway. The roads were icy. People needed to learn how to drive defensively on these roads with the big vehicles that we brought with us. General Mattis had come up with dynamic force employment as a way to uh, keep the adversaries on their toes by perhaps deploying large capacity American weapon systems in places that they did not expect. And so uh, we wrote a paper in Naples, submitted it up through the uh, UCOM commander to the joint staff and to SecDef and asked to use the Harry S. Truman Strike Group in Trident Juncture to send a message. It was very much inspired by a former Secretary of the Navy's book, John Lehman, called Oceans Ventured. Oceans Ventured was about the maritime strategy of 1986 and arguably one of the best of the 20th century. And we operated up there. And it dawned on me when I wrote a review for that book for the U.S. Naval Institute that we had not operated up there for over 20 years, you know, not since the end of the Cold War. And we hadn't had a carrier up there. And so when General Mattis said yes and delegated us the operational and tactical command of that carrier, the Harry S. Truman Strike Group, it was uh, an absolute, you know, manna from heaven. So the carrier came in with its associated direct support destroyers and an air wing of almost 70 aircraft, and we airdropped it into NATO, but NATO adapted. And uh, they love flying with those guys. We were launching uh, F-18s off the Harry S. Truman and 12 to 18 foot seas. There was nobody on that ship from the strike group commander on down who had operated in that region in their lifetime in the Navy. And so we learned a lot of lessons about ice and the flight deck and risk mitigation and how to do things safely and uh, how to fight an Article 5 operation where uh, an adversary, presumably the Russians, had invaded northern Norway. Norway called for help. The only time Article 5 has ever been used for real in 72 years of the alliance was when America was attacked in 911, and the alliance uh, came to our assistance, and that's how they ended up in Afghanistan. We moved seven brigades of equipment in about 30 days. We planned this operation for 18 months, built uh, you know 40 temporary bases throughout Norway. All the Norwegians came out to support in something they called a total defense concept. This sent a very strong message, and that was the reason we did it to the Russians, that should you choose to make a mistake and cross a line of a sovereign border of a member of the NATO alliance, then you will pay a price. And in order to make that transparent to them, we invited Russian observers, and two of them came. And they were sitting behind the Secretary General 
and myself on the Distinguished Visitors Day, where we did an incredible firepower demonstration for all of the North Atlantic Council and all of the military chiefs of the military committee. And, uh, you know, the two Russian observers were about 10 rows back, but they got to see everything that everybody else did. And it was impressive. And I think in this deter and defend and dialogue mantra that we have in NATO, you have to prove to any adversary who is thinking about crossing the line into your territory that the risk calculus is too great. And that's how we did it. And I think that exercise and the lessons learned from that exercise will remain relevant for a very long time. For example, afterwards, NATO started a study on military mobility, and uh, that's related to logistics. And I learned during exercise Trident Juncture that logistics is really the sixth domain of warfare. You know, we have the land, the sea, the air, cyberspace, and then you have logistics, which is kind of a world of its own. It is across all other domains. And if you can't do it and you're not proficient, then the warfighter, you know, on the pointy end of the spear is going to suffer. Or worst case scenario, you're going to lose battles. And if you lose too many battles, you'll lose the war. So logistics has become that important. And I think that was a very powerful lesson that was not lost on anybody in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization uh, that came out of uh, Trident Junction. And I got to tell you, it was, as a commander, a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, spending time with the Norwegians, all other partners, or all other allies, all 30 allies, and then two significant partners, the Swedes and the Finns. They're not members of NATO, but man, are they with us. It was great. And they're very capable forces. And so uh, I think when, you know, uh, Russia looks at NATO territory, uh, they stand back. It was a different story in the Ukraine because Ukraine is not a member of NATO. It was a different story in Georgia in the Black Sea because Georgia is not a member of NATO. And uh, that may change in the future. There's dialogue and discussion about that that was relevant in the, uh, the summits that just took place with President Biden when he went to Europe for the first time. Well, thank you so much, sir. I have one last question for you. Do you have any other words of wisdom or encouragement for the DOD Reads audience? Uh, keep reading. And, uh, you know, as we say at the Naval Institute, dare to write. So I would love to see more coming out of the brilliant minds like yourself, Ryder, and Phoebe, and everybody else that serves in the Joint Force, regardless of what type of uniform you wear, and the Space Force for that matter. Like, we need to know what the warfighters on the pointy end of the spear are thinking. When I was in Naples as Sixth Fleet Commander, you know, one of my standard uh, mantras was empower the lieutenants. I was a lieutenant once too, and I wanted to do more. I wanted to do a lot more. I was always asking, can I do this? Can we do this? Can I be a part of that? Can I go to this school? Uh, I want to hear enthusiastic young O3s of all the services coming forward and telling us how we can do joint warfighting better. I mean, we've got a big discussion going on about uh, JADC2, joint all domain access. Uh, we've got a big discussion going on in the Navy about networks and clouds and project overmatch. And the young generation that's in the Navy driving the ships right now and soon to be commanding officers are the ones that are going to have to fight to win, but win without fighting. So we wanna hear from you. And uh, the way that you 
will continue to stimulate your own minds and become more professional warfighters is through reading, uh, just like General Mattis uh, said, and I quoted in the beginning, you want to learn something new, read an old book. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Ryder. It's been a pleasure. A box of books is like a care package for your brain. If your command library is looking a bit shabby, DOD Reads can help. We are connected to multiple organizations that would be glad to send your command free books, magazines, and high-quality reading material. Head over to dodreads.com and check out our featured article, Eight Ways to Request Free Books for Your Command, and then let us know, what are you reading? Thanks for listening to this episode of What Are You Reading? A podcast produced through partnership with DOD Reads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a comment with your answer to the question, what are you reading? Also, visit dodreads.com for free books, book reviews, interviews with your favorite authors, and many more free professional development resources. See you next week.